Welcome to part two of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. Continuing on with our theme of environmental medicine, we're all ears to hear about our next paper entitled Scuba Diving and Otology, a systematic review with recommendations on diagnosis, treatment and post-operative care by Livingston, Smith and Lang. Do you want to dance? This paper published in the Journal of Diving and Hyperbaric Medicine in 2017. Diving has become more accessible over the past half century, from the use of professional divers and landing itself amongst popular recreation activities, whether it be a rewarding hobby or embarking on a holiday with unparalleled adventures. More and more people are getting dive certified. While this has been seen as relatively safe, there does exist a risk of death and injury from scuba diving. What we know about diving complications is that the majority of them involve the head and the neck, totaling about 80% of injuries, with 65% of those injuries occurring within the outer, middle or inner ear. The concept of barotrauma and Boyle's law in relation to the diver descending, where pressure increases and the volume of gas compresses within an air-containing rigid or semi-rigid walled structure, such as the middle ear or paranasal sinuses, can cause a relative negative pressure, which can cause mucosal edema, hemorrhage or perforation. On ascent, the volume of gas increases, relying on equalization with surrounding pressure. On failure to do so, this can also result in perforation, pneumococcalus, and other head and neck pathologies. We can also apply Henry's law for those studying at home. It's where the the weight of the gas dissolved in a liquid is proportional to the pressure of the gas upon a liquid. Where this is applied is where inert gas is delivered via the lung into circulation, and on descent, progressively higher gas pressures are delivered to the lung, resulting in a proportionate amount of inert gas dissolving into a tissue depending on the depth and the bottom time, as well as the tissue characteristics themselves. On ascent, the inert gas load comes out of solution and is ideally exhaled, with issues arising from the rate of ascent exceeding alveolar gas exchange, meaning that those inert gases remain within the circulation and as in tissues as bubbles, resulting in decompression sickness. The authors of the paper point out that while we know about physics and physiology of dive injuries, our diagnosis, treatment and prevention is limited by the lack of evidence or systematic reviews on these, and they seek to inform this gap in the knowledge, and to provide some evidence-based recommendations around this. The authors aim to identify and provide a review on a range of topics and conditions, including the pathology of the outer, middle and inner ear, as well as facial nerve pathology, seasickness, de debarkment syndrome or disembarkment syndrome, as well as post-operative recommendations. The methods of this study included a search of the literature, to which they've claimed to identify all literature discussing scuba diving and otolaryngology, excluding papers not in English or no English translation available. A total of 398 abstracts were identified. Further exclusions were made for duplications, not involving otology and diving, or solely discuss rhinology or oromaxillofacial topics. They've also chosen to exclude abstracts that were not available in full text. Further abstracts were then excluded on the basis that they were reviews, grey literature, or individual case reports. In total, from the 398, the authors identified 44 articles for review. Based on the Oxford Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine, the authors have graded the level of evidence for each of those papers and collated the relevant recommendations. This has been critically appraised by the lead author. In each of the diving pathologies that they have presented, the authors reported on the level of evidence and the recommendations from the studies. They've also provided a table summarising the grading as an appendix, as well as the design, method and results of the 44 studies. They broke this down into brief summaries of the conditions themselves and then the recommendations based on the level of evidence. So we'll go over those really quickly. They've identified as otitis externa as a common disorder primarily from Pseudomonas aeruginosa, in treatment of which the authors have recommended dry ear precautions, including recommendation of ethanol and acetic acid otic drops, topical antimicrobial therapy, and serial debridement of the external auditory canal. This recommendation was based off a textbook entitled Diving in Subaquatic Medicine and is based on level 5 evidence. They then explored exostosis, or bony outgrowths from the external auditory canal, which can lead to recurrent otitis externa, 
recurrent otorrhea, cerumen impaction and conductive hearing loss from canal obstruction. The authors suggest that in symptomatic patients, canaloplasty should be considered, but it shouldn't affect fitness to dive unless symptomatic, once again based on a level 5 evidence. External auditory canal barotrauma occurs secondary to occlusion from cerumen impaction, foreign body or tight-fitting wetsuit or dry suit hoods, as well as aforementioned exostosis. This can cause an airspace in the external auditory canal with pressure changes impacting on the canal with potential edema or hemorrhage. The recommendation based on level 5 evidence is similar to treating otitis externa with a course of topical analgesic or steroid eardrops and refraining from diving and mitigating the etiology of the occlusion. The authors identify barotrauma as accounting for 46% of patient presentations for diving-related head and neck pathology. They make comment about the patients with tubal tonsillar hypertrophy undergoing tuberplasty operations in the role of improving their middle ear equalization, but this was done in a small cohort of nine divers with improvement in seven of these. No further analysis of this study was conducted and it was rated as level four evidence. They go on to suggest positioning as a factor of equalization, such as avoiding head down positioning on ascent and descent, avoidance of descent if unable to equalize, as well as the use of maneuvers such as avoiding using a forced bell salva based on level 5 evidence. The authors also describe alternobaric vertigo as a transient vertigo secondary to asymmetrical equalization of middle ear pressure pathophysiologically distinct from nitrogen narcosis and more commonly affecting female divers, reportedly four times as prevalent. This was not found to increase risk of a life-threatening or critical illness or event while diving amongst a cohort of 63 recreational divers and 64 professional divers. This is based on 2B evidence and the authors recommend that diver education of safety procedure and understanding of risks while undergoing these attacks of alternobaric vertigo was recommended. Inner ear barotrauma primarily occurs through implosive or explosive mechanisms which transmit to the cochlea through the round and oval windows. Forced valsalva and failed valsalva can also cause the transmission of pressure waves which can lead to fluctuations in CSF pressure into the cochlear aqueduct leading to a perilymphatic fistula. The authors recommended an exploratory tympanotomy and a round or oval window patching should this fistula occur based on retrospective cohort and case studies. The evidence which the authors provided for high-dose steroids was also based on expert opinion. The authors note that the vestibular portion of the labyrinth has higher rates of supersaturation and arterial microbubble load, causing inner ear decompression sickness with complications of fibrooseous labyrinthitis, with the authors identifying the risk increase conferred from deep technical diving using helium oxygen mix and trimix breathing gases. The recommendations for recompression as soon as possible, based on level 3B evidence, go on to infer that 90% of divers expect inner ear damage exceeding five hours of non-treatment from hyperbaric oxygen. The authors make reference to an animal study from which squirrel monkeys had induced inner ear decompression sickness with findings earlier on as 1.5 hours. There were also recommendations for corticosteroid use to reduce inflammatory edema, as well as the use of low molecular weight dextran to improve microcirculation from a level 5 study published in 1991. Facial nerve pathology is identified as rare, although it's thought to be caused by reduced axonal capillary blood flow caused by a negative middle ear pressure caused by a relative vacuum with an intraneural swelling from transudate or blood causing compression and ischemia, or possibly from expanding trapped gas in the middle ear space. The authors recommend for meringotomy to relieve middle ear pressure, but identify no consensus on the role of facial nerve decompression. The level 5 evidence also recommends corticosteroids. They've also mentioned seasickness or motion sickness with mismatch of vestibular, proprioceptive and visual inputs. They identify risk factors as female gender, altered vestibular or visual sensory cues, history of migraines and hormonal effects of pregnancy and oral contraception. Interestingly, they make mention of psychosocial factors such as a lower risk factor for developing seasickness when people were told they were unlikely to experience seasickness. The authors also make mention of their review of three randomized prospective double-blind studies on motion sickness using scopolamine versus promethazine and caffeine, scopolamine versus 
meclizine, lorazepam, undansetron, droparidol, as well as scopolamine and effect on cognitive performance in comparison to other drugs. Overall, they make mention that scopolamine was a superior drug except in the case of promethazine and caffeine and suggest caffeine as an adjunct would be useful in the role of seasickness. This will probably have made an interesting study by itself by looking at the further analysis of these recommendations. There are some post-operative recommendations at the end of the discussion, namely describing the sequelae of diving following tympanostomy tubes, tympanoplasty and stapedectomy, which provide information for those post-surgery wanting to return to diving. They identify a risk of otitis media from tympanostomy tube with recommendation for a one-way membrane, or otherwise they would be probably unfit to dive. Post-operative tympanoplasty patients with impaired eustachian tubes are at a higher risk of barotrauma and require further assessment on a case-to-case basis. As for the post-stapidectomy patients, no increased risk was found in patients who had undergone stapidectomy, and the authors recommend dry ear precautions for the first three weeks and return to diving one month post-operatively. Looking at this paper, this reads more of an overview, as you will, addressing a broad scope in the tracking development of a clinical concept, including an overview on the pathophysiology, with appraising previous studies based on certain topics, looking for those gaps in the knowledge, with the aim of identifying and summarizing what has already been published. It certainly provides a collation of specialized otological conditions in relations to diving, and provides a sound description of the pathophysiological processes leading to these conditions. But what is demonstrated in the recommendations is a lack of quality evidence explored in this review, as well as a lack of data synthesis and analysis into the study themselves. What I'd like to know from the rest of the panel is the glaring name of the paper itself, a systematic review. To you, Dr. Coggins, what's the difference between a narrative review and a systematic review? I think a systematic review has to sort of assess, formally be registered on Prospero. They've certainly systematically gone through the literature, not with a librarian, which is what I usually would do. And they seem to have found some interesting papers. And then they've randomly sort of cherry-picked the ones they think are sort of relevant and put them in their results. The four highlights for me were the animal studies, which I'm amazed had any ethics, but the hundreds of uh, squirrel monkeys that they, they decompressed their ears and exploded them and then cut them up seems quite horrendous. They've gone back to the 80s, found all these animal studies and included those. So generally, a systematic review probably mostly include human studies with specific dates, a specific search strategy, and they would potentially apply some degree of an assessment of the quality of those studies. I think the previous paper we just covered, they were used at the grade system, but there's other assessments you can make like using Cochrane or using the Ottawa scale as various different ones. And then you wouldn't be able to cherry pick the studies. You'd have to sort of be forced to include the kind of those studies. And it seems to me here that they had a reasonable process to systematically search, but they seem to have cherry picked certain studies out. Hence, it's more of a narrative review. There is more flexibility with a narrative review to tell the story about what you think, having done all this research yourself and looked at all the literature, what your opinions are and take-homes are for the reader. So narrative reviews are often nice to read, where a systematic review probably can be turned more into a paper airplane or maybe filed in your, your more definitive section and things you want to remember. I think this is more of a narrative review than a systematic review. There are some pearls in there about how to manage some of these kind of diving emergencies, which just like the last paper that we covered, you don't see very often, but you should be thinking of in patients that have been diving. The one other glaring thing about this was the absence of a defined clinical question. To me, if you're going to systematically review anything, first you need to have a question that you're trying to answer. And this paper, I guess, this again alludes to the narrative review thing. It was like, let's find out everything that we can about otolaryngology in relation to dive medicine and then present it, which is great. It feels uh-huh. like someone's doing this, maybe a surgical master's and has done an assignment and is like, how can I turn this into a publishable paper? And that's kind of what they've done. So like they've done a lot of work on it and they've developed their own expertise in the area, but it's very surgically biased as well, isn't it? You know, there's an element of how exotosis and all these other things that you could do. And a lot of the studies that have gone in there are either animal studies, like I said, which are questionable from an ethical point of view, and also just for random retrospective studies, which are very surgically biased. Now, as someone who is very land-based and never have gone scuba diving before, what are some key instructions when you need to go diving? I mean, imagine there's some logistical considerations when you're keeping in mind some important principles from a physiological perspective when undertaking a dive. I'd love to hear your thoughts, Scott. 
main thing is that certainly we see in the diving medicine and certainly in the Navy diving context is really the middle ear barotrauma is, is probably the main and sinus barotrauma. But basically, you know, um, people that are, are naive to diving and to being able to uh, Valsalva or use one of the other techniques when you start to dive and then sort of get to a point uh, when they continue to go to depth. We're talking from as little as only one to two meters uh, that you should be starting to equalize. And uh, if they can't do that or they're not great at doing that and they continue to try and dive and then uh, you know you get to a, a depth or pressure that you can't equalize. And if they pursue that, then they get grades of middle ear barotrauma with the worst being that um, they can get a perforation. They certainly, they talk about also in here, alternobaric effects. So if you can equalize one ear, uh, but not the other so well, which is not uncommon, then that can cause some transient vertigo. And obviously that can cause problems if you're underwater. That's certainly the main things, the, you know, exostoses and titus externa, and that really, that's no different in its management than, you know, if someone presents for another reason and find those things. They talk about also inner ear barotrauma. So inner ear barotrauma is obviously uh, more serious. It's a lot less common. And once again, that's related to, you know, pressure effects with diving. It can happen, you know, secondary to middle ear barotrauma. It can happen also after the dive. So classic is someone's, you know, had some middle ear related barotrauma trauma and then you're back on board the uh, boat and the classic thing they talk about is you know then they're hauling up the anchor and so they're sort of forcefully you know doing like a, a valsalva maneuver or increasing their pressures and then they can get injury to the overall or round window and get an inner ear barotrauma it is interesting in this paper they talk about you know significant doses of prednisone for that and they said 250 milligrams or three days, I, I'm not sure if they're talking about sort of 250 in total. I assume they are, but big doses, it's nothing that I would sort of routinely have done or that I think the ENT guys in Australia would do. But their management is really just supporting them and most of them get better. They do talk about things like perilymph fistulas. That's the next, I guess, extension of injury or grade of injury. They're very uncommon. And really then that is when you get ENT involved and they may need to have fascial flap to close off the fistula. When I was at the Navy's diving medicine unit, I think I saw one case, you know, over years. So they're uncommon. And then they do talk about decompression sickness and more related to the ENT sort of space or for inner ear decompression sickness. So that's the same reason why you get decompression sickness in general. We talked about Boyle's law before with Henry's law. If you ascend and you emit decompression stops or you're doing multiple dives and things that you can get to a point where then you can get you know, dissolutions of bubbles and they can have an effect anywhere in the body, such as, you know, in the joints or skin or neurosystem. And certainly they can in the inner ear as well. And if that happens in the inner ear, then you can get the same things. You can get vertigo and you can get hearing loss and tinnitus and things. And that tends to happen after the dive. And that may be somewhere, you know, several hours afterwards. And they may also have other features of decompression sickness in other body systems. And that is managed by therapeutic recompression in the hyperbaric chamber. One is sort of measured with supportive cares and that in terms of inner ear barotrauma, whereas decompression sickness for the inner ear and in general, if it's severe enough, is managed with um, recompression. You know, I guess in the space in Sydney, then uh, you know, that's called hyperbaric unit at POW. There'll be a hyperbaric doctor on call who will hear the story and things and then um, decide uh, with the treating team uh, to whether this person needs to go in, uh, in the chamber. This paper, as you've mentioned, has sort of covered a quite a large variety of different otologic diagnoses. You're now our resident dive expert. How do you actually sort of work up and differentiate the patient who comes in with acute hearing or vestibular disturbances post-diving? Yeah, it's a great question. It's certainly in part, you know, the history. If they're having difficulty equalizing and they had you know, difficulties on descent, they either had, like, for example, for inner ear barotrauma, some symptoms perhaps on ascent or shortly after the dive, and they may have been doing some sort of effort like lifting the gear up or something like that. And you look at their ears and they may have also signs of middle ear barotrauma. So, you know, they might have an injected tympanic membrane. They might have blood behind the tympanic membrane or it might be perforated. That's probably more in keeping with a middle slash and then potentially if they've got vertigo and hearing loss, et cetera, in the ear barotrauma. Whereas if their story of their dive, you know, their ascent and their equalization and everything all sounded pretty benign and fine, 
but you ask them about their dive profile. So, you know, maybe they were diving deeper than they expected or for longer than they expected, or they emitted decompression stops, or they dived multiple times on a day where they weren't expecting to do that, or there was something, you know, sort of different in their dive that they expected, or if they've got access to their dive computer and, you know, they can show you that. And most people that have dive computers are all boffins over it and they, they'll love to tell you about it till you're bored. You know, if you're not sure, you just speak to the hyperbaric doctor or the dive doctor who's on. But that situation is probably more likely if they had vestibular dysfunction than it's a inner ear decompression sickness. And inner ear decompression sickness can also happen for some reason. I don't really know why. It's probably to do with the dissolution of the gases. So people that dive, you know how most of the community dives with normal air in cylinders. There's a branch of the community that dive with mixed gases. So they'll dive with a nitrogen oxygen mix, or if they're diving deeper, a helium nitrogen oxygen mix. And so that's very specific diving. And they are more prone to inner ear decompression sickness. Yeah, there's probably some nuances in the history, really. And then a couple of things on the exam that might point you one way or the other. If you're not sure about most diving stuff, you sort of lie them relatively flat, you give them oxygen, you give them a bit of IV fluid and you call the diving doctor at the hyperbaric unit. <laughs> and that hasn't really changed probably forever, really, last 20, 30 years. All the first aid, all the primary stuff that we can do, you know, in a non sort of hyperbaric facility hasn't changed. What are the other potential injuries that can occur from diving and or, or ascent? You mentioned inner ear decompression. How else does decompression manifest and what problems can you encounter a patient who's recently dived? You're back in the late 90s and it's, I was still young. believe that or don't believe it depending on what you think but there was a advert for the macbooks and it was bubbles tiny bubbles by the rolling stones i think oh, i just remember that so i always think of like as tiny bubbles and big bubbles so you've got your giant bubbles that are bursting your mediastinum like that movie alien with sigourney weaver just when you come up rapidly your last six meters of ascent is actually the most change in terms of small bubbles becoming very big very quickly so if it will double in size it's also related to the length of time you've been down there as well but that last few meters recreational divers are actually quite a lot of risk of decompression sickness but also arterial embolus if they come up rapidly particularly yeah. if they get sick they get vertigo and they panic or they vomit and they come up quickly so i always think of the big bubbles as the, the explosion that happens if you come up really quickly in that last few meters and you're going to have cardiovascular collapse and basically it's a disaster and then the other type of bubbles is your tiny bubbles and they tend to go not in the large vessels your mediastinum and central but they go in the small places bone lymphatic skin so you might get a rash you might get joint pain and you might get little kind of you know vertigo ear pain middle ear stuff so i think scott's listed those pretty nicely and the paper does talk about those things and list them pretty well the things that can happen down into those two things are the main things that i would be thinking about retrieval is always interesting because if you're going to go in a helicopter you can't compress a helicopter whereas you can compress a fixed wing aircraft so if you're moving these patients, this would be a consideration of how you might fly. You don't want to be going scuba diving, have decompression sickness, then get in an airplane because that obviously makes it worse. Also, you don't want to be in a pond in Bolivia and come out of the pond uh, that you've been diving in and, and be at high altitude because that's obviously going to make things worse too. So the altitude that you're at or you're exposed to the patient to is kind of going to be relevant to retrieving these patients from wherever they're coming from. But if I'm a really simple person, I just think of the bubbles being tiny or very large. If they're very big bubbles, they're going to be catastrophic central cardiovascular collapse type bubbles. And if they're very small bubbles, they're going to be more peripheral signs, ears, skin, and joints. The timing is going to be quite different as well. So that's the way I would think of things. And from a retrieval perspective, the, the consideration is do you, can you decompress them to cabin pressure, sea, sea level pressure? In a helicopter, you can't do that, but you can do that in a fixed wing aircraft. We've had people have arterial gas emboli in, in the last couple of meters. So as Andrew said, it's really, you know, there's a sort of a misconception, I think, about, you know, you can't get serious uh, sequela. You can get it even in a swimming pool, in a deep enough pool. And then if you, you know, had a closed glottis, you didn't blow out, um, you know, on uh, coming up the last couple of meters, you cause significant pulmonary barrier trauma or uh, cerebral arterial gas embolism and they are catastrophic often uh, you know they're either going to get pulmonary barrier trauma with you know pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum or they're going to get an arterial gas embolism or they're sort of very similar features to a you know a stroke-like pattern depending upon the where the bubbles have sort of gone in the brain it's not only their transit and, and you know there's this theory you know that they cause an obstruction but you know they actually 
it's thought that they damage the endothelium and then there's a secondary sort of cascade of effects that happen. But yeah, and that is usually on surface or within a couple of minutes of surfacing that someone will have that. So so the classic is loss of consciousness on the surface and they might get to the boat and, you know, the dive boat's got some oxygen and things. They put them on that and they might sort of, you know, come to, but they've got a some sort of neurological, you know, pattern or, or event or you know they're presenting with you know chest pain and signs of um either pneumomyositis or pneumothorax or something yeah the small bubbles related uh so they're not the gas embolism so decompression sickness as andrew said classic there's this marbling the acutest marmorata which is the rash that they get or the joint pain so the joint pain and the fatigue and sort of non-specific sort of symptoms is certainly the most common that is seen and then they can get you know spinal neurological symptoms they can get, yeah, other systems involved, but certainly joints and skin is probably the more common. And in arterial gas embolism, it's usually catastrophic and it's usually either uh, chest or, or um, neurological sequelae. I agree, Andrew said, you yeah, know, low level. So even, yeah, we've had people that have dived down south coast New South Wales and then when they come over the range, you know, coming up from Wollongong, you know, they develop symptoms. So trying to transport people and either, you know, low level flying or yeah one atmosphere flying if you can pressurize a cabin you know we've retrieved people from in the middle of the pacific so like the marshall islands i recall we, we retrieved a guy on a you know, in a air force uh, hercules but that's he had uh, neurological gas embolism and that's a you know significant thing to be trying to transport these guys and all the burden of uh you know if you're pressurizing cabins the uh the extra fuel that takes to be able to fly lower, to be able to pressurize, et cetera, it all has to be sort of taken into consideration. Fortunately, a lot of the decompression uh, illness we see in Australia is of the milder form. And unfortunately, most of the nasty stuff happens when people are on holidays, you know, in a lot of the Pacific nations, which don't have you know, access to the same medical care and, and certainly don't have the same access to uh, recompression as we do here. Is hyperbaric oxygen the be-all and end-all for all diving-related injuries? Which patients actually need hyperbaric oxygen? And what are the other management considerations when dealing with dive injuries or illnesses? Only if they have a, uh, I guess, a small or large bubble-related problem, you know, that they need uh, to be considered for hyperbaric oxygen. You know, so pressure-related effects, so whether that's sinus or middle ear or inner ear barotrauma or other pressure-related effects don't need recompression. And, you know, you can make a case that if you, uh, you know, you've already got middle ear barotrauma and then you're uh, essentially diving again, you can't equalise when you're diving them anyway. Sometimes those people need to have, you know, tympanostomy tubes placed just to be even be able to recompress them if they had another. So let's say they had middle ear barotrauma and they had uh, decompression illness as well. Obviously, most of the other non-decompression sickness-related stuff in this paper, you know, doesn't get therapeutic recompression. So it's really only if they've got um, decompression illness. So if they've got decompression sickness or um, tear gas embolism, then they uh, should be considered. Having said that, you know, mild like skin related decompression sickness or joints, most people are going to get better anyway. And so, you know, there has been some trials and once again, not that robust that if you're giving people on the milder end of the spectrum analgesia such as anti-inflammatories, and some IV fluid, and you then plus or minus just normal baric oxygen, they get better anyway. The role for hyperbaric oxygen is really probably in people that have more significant musculoskeletal decompression sickness and uh, the more significant illnesses such as uh, neurological decompression sickness or certainly arterial gas embolism. Therapeutic recompression is the treatment for that. Is there a time frame to access the hyperbaric oxygen chamber, um, given the time constraints of possible access to those chambers as well? Is there an ideal time that you should be initiating those sorts of treatments? Yes, if you believe the hyperbaric doctors, it could be a long time, right? Like two weeks. Yeah. And yeah. So that, that's, that's exactly right. right in. That, that may be true. So if you shine a light on something, you study it and you, yeah. you feel better. So I think one of the key things here for the listener to take home would be 
if you're going to send someone to hyperbaric and I've hardly done that, I'll put my hand up and say, I've hardly ever done that. If you're going to do it, you want to make sure there's nothing else going on. Right. So yeah. we don't want to be sending somebody to the hyperbaric who has other injuries or other causes for their symptoms. So the first thing I would be doing if I was my patient, I'd be making sure that they had a good history that fitted with carbonated drinks in their joints or their ear, I made sure I didn't have any other problems. So a thorough examination, a thorough history to make sure there's nothing else, no injuries that they've sustained. They haven't had another cause for their symptoms. Apparently inflating a blood pressure cuff to 200 millimeters of mercury over the joint that's sore or the, the joints that are sore should improve this improve it. according to Rosen's textbook. So there you go. So there's a bit of a pearl there. So if you're not really sure, you can stick a blood pressure cuff on there and crank it up till it's would be painful for you and for me and the listeners, but also it makes the patient's pain better. Amazing. Um, so assuming you've got the right diagnosis, by all means, send them. And allegedly up to sort of 21 days could be the, the time period that their symptoms could improve. So say they've been on holiday, they come back, they've got some symptoms. You could refer this patient a week or two down the track if they've got ongoing symptoms and you might expect resolution. Whether that's placebo, I don't know, but it would be allegedly there. When I was at the dive unit in Sydney, we would sort of work with Prince of Wales and, and the unit still does. And um, so we'd both sort of share treating of a, either our Navy divers or, you know, civilian divers and exactly what Andy said. So, you know, if the story sounds sort of suspicious and they've still got symptoms and you can't explain it by another means, then sometimes, you know, you you would still treat them and that may be days to weeks later. And that obviously doesn't make any sense from a bubble perspective. The other sort of theory is about then secondary inflammation or other injury. Maybe that makes some sort of sense. Often they'll give a trial in inverted commas of therapeutic recompression. I agree. Whether that is placebo or not, I don't really know. Some people it seems to work for and others don't. Like, you know, I can't really comment on good science or evidence behind that certainly you know the more severe end of the spectrum so people that have paralyzed with a spinal decompression sickness or uh you know they time is important for them that you know ideally you would try and you know treat them as soon as possible and some people don't get back to australia for several days but you try and treat them you know sort of as soon as they got back certainly in the context of the arterial gas embolism you really want to treat them as as soon as possible so in an ideal world, you know, within that day or within the hours, you know, if they've got a big neurological consequence, like higher CNS consequence uh, from uh, arterial gas embolism, you want to treat them. Yeah. Submarine escape tower I was talking about, we had a, a recompression chamber at the top of that, you know, so they'd sort of do this escape and it's a 19 meter tower that they had to sort of float to the surface in their submarine escape suits and then they had signs of gas embolism when they got to the top they went straight in the chamber and certainly the cases that i know about they, they did well uh, and they could have done you know pretty poorly so yeah i think it's a really broad sort of window of potential treatment if you've got more severe symptoms and certainly if you've got gas embolism you should be treated as soon as possible if it's more sort of ethereal then you'll have a trial of treatment, I guess, which could be some days or even weeks later. But absolutely, as Andrew said, you know, get a good history, get a look for alternative diagnoses because, you know, there's certainly been cases where people have had TAAs and things and uh, or intercurrent, you know, medical conditions, which was explained as diving related. So common things obviously are still common. You know, a 50 or 60-year-old person that's diving and then has got some neurological stuff afterwards may or may not be related to diving you know i've got a bunch of head banging kind of reflections on reading this paper well the first one is all the three-letter acronyms that are there so i was like <laughs> by the time i got to the three-letter acronym it was either in french or english but i was like struggling to know what that was and i thought scuba was an acronym for a self-contained underwater breathing apparatus yeah. scuba yeah and so that yet the, the authors here put scuba in lowercase letters so i just picked them up on that one right, anytime there's lots of tla's three-letter acronyms it's either to exclude the patient from our conversation at the end of the bed or it's just to confuse the non-specialist like me reading this paper so i was really overwhelmed by that and the, the most amazing thing here, I was, I was just surprised they didn't mention magnesium because anytime there's an evidence-free zone, they should definitely mention magnesium because, of course, magnesium, <laughs> magnesium works for everything except hypermagnesemia and male pattern baldness. Are you suggesting I should stop taking magnesium for my male pattern baldness? Oh, definitely keep taking it. It, it, it definitely works, but only in high dose. <laughs> only when it eliminates your reflexes. In terms of prevention, what are the key factors to consider when you're advising a patient who's come in with some sort of acute 
illness or injury and they're hoping to go scuba diving in the coming days, which patients are you going to say, absolutely, you cannot get in the water and which patients are safe to go ahead? What about the inverse? How soon can someone who's been diving get on a flight back home and you know, who do we need to be careful about? They've been on a diving holiday somewhere, you know, said 24 hours that they shouldn't dive before they fly. You know, if they've been really pushing, you know, doing three or four dives a day or sort of pushing the envelope, that should probably be extended, you know, for another 24 hours. Having said that, most people don't listen to that. Most keen divers are their own worst enemy and do all the wrong things like drink and up all night, et cetera, and then uh, still dive the next day. People have had a, uh, like a middle ear or sinus barotrauma, certainly in a Navy space, we tell them to use things like, you know, the otrovenasal sprays or pseudosfed sprays and things to try and help their station tube function. I don't think there's great evidence for that. So really, it's just time, you know. They need to be out of the water, depending on their grade of barotrauma for days. So they shouldn't dive at least for the next three or four days. If they can't valsalva and they should never force it, but if they can't equalise, then, you know, they're certainly not going to be able to do it when they're underwater. We used to be very strict on what conditions you absolutely shouldn't dive with, you know. So, you know, asthma, we used to say no for diving, you know. If someone's well-controlled and things on asthma, then, you know, often, and they do dive now. Same with other chronic medical conditions such as diabetes. If they're not well controlled and risk of hypos, et cetera, underwater, you know, it's all sensible stuff. People with, you know, obvious lung conditions. So if they've had, you know, if they've got pulmonary fibrosis or if they've had previous scarring and things, potentially with different pressure effects and shear effects and things, potential risk of pneumothoraces and that. So they're probably people, a lot of dive doctors are still probably pretty conservative in that space. I mean, having said that, you know, I've certainly had Navy and Army divers who have, you know, had lung injuries from overseas operations there and then have dived and have been all right. So that's also probably a bit theoretical. People with known seizure disorders obviously would not be super keen on them diving. You know, you get people come for, I guess, all sorts of reasons wanting to dive, and I totally understand that. It's great. But people with unstable cardiac disease, you know, if you're having to dive and you're working against a current in cold water, et cetera, you know, there's a fair effort for that. So... You know, there's sort of some practicalities too that, you know, if you think that someone is at risk because of the effort of doing mild to moderate activity, then they shouldn't probably be diving as well. Just, you know, ENT related stuff, they shouldn't, cardiorespiratory and then things with neurological stuff. So if you just think if you're in that sort of space and if you have exit medical condition, do you think that would put them at risk? And if the answer is yes, then it probably is. What about your more routine sort of traveler presentations to the emergency department, things like your sort of minor illnesses or your, your gastros or your flus or your, you know, sprained ankles, that sort of stuff. If they're not too congested or if the ankle isn't too bad, they're all right to get in the yeah, water. Yeah, they are all right. Maybe don't share their wetsuit afterwards if it's a gastro person, <laughs> but uh, maybe don't dive behind them. There's some, once again, theoretical, if you've already got a joint that's inflamed and things, you know, if you were diving and you had some sort of provocative dive profile that puts you at increased risk, then, you know, the, you potentially have more risk of decompression sickness in a joint that's already inflamed uh, or, or more vascularity to it, I guess. Once again, I don't know if there's great evidence behind that. And certainly if you've got an upper respiratory tract infection, uncomfortable to dive when you're like that anyway, people do, but it will certainly make it much more difficult to equalize, you know, and so they're at greater risk of middle ear and sinus barotrauma and then not being able to successfully, you know, do the dive anyway or, or hurting themselves. So, yeah, I think from an urgent perspective, you will have difficulty equalizing and probably won't be able to dive until you have resolution of your, you know, congestion. And once again, if you can't equalize without... And you should never forcefully equalize, obviously. But if you can't just by routinely doing whatever you normally do, then that's a, you shouldn't be diving. Thank you all for diving into the depths of that discussion. There are some really good points to remember there and some things to think about before I go off to do some recreational diving myself in Halong Bay. My take-home points are merely titling something as a systematic review doesn't mean you've adhered or registered to a particular study protocol or design. My second point is how we approach patients with potential dive injuries. 
with keeping in mind those potentially catastrophic complications, the clinical presentation and the history and the timing of events are important in raising that clinical suspicion to us that constellation of symptoms. And coordinating the care with an appropriate centre if required is paramount to getting someone really good definitive care. it's time for our interlude presented by Dr. Scott Squires. So I was involved with 2019-20 bushfires down in Victoria and then um, most recently with the floods here up in northern New South Wales and that was uh, with the area health service rather than uh, the military. They, you know, there was a military presence but certainly not a really a military health presence. So um, in the context of the bushfires, so um, I was on board one of our sort of amphibious ships, uh, HMAS Chul. So on um, uh, New Year's Eve in 2019, there was you know, fires sort of raging throughout New South Wales and Victoria. And in particular, there was uh, some of the towns that sort of have, which are common, I think, in southern New South Wales and also in uh, Victoria, sort of one road sort of in access to a lot of coastal towns. Some of those places were isolated. And in particular, the town of Malakuta, which is in the eastern part of Victoria, just sort of south of the New South Wales-Victorian border. And so geographically closer to a lot of places in New South Wales and certainly Victoria. So Eden is probably the biggest place, town, which is in you know, southern New South Wales. So yeah, that town was sort of uh, essentially cut off from anyone being able to be evacuated because of the roads were cut. Uh, there's a road that goes out to the Princess Highway. So the only means to get people out was either via air or by sea. And so I was sort of told on New Year's Day that, you know, I had a couple of hours to try and get a flight to Sydney because the ship was sailing. And I missed the ship um, and got a helicopter uh, from a field uh, in Sydney to join the ship sort of uh, on its way down south. So we arrived that evening to Malakuta or just off Malakuta, anchored uh, sort of a kilometre offshore. Couldn't see the, uh, the land because of the smoke. And then the plan was the next morning to go into town, see what they needed, not only in terms of health, but, but obviously also in terms of infrastructure and engineering support and supplies and things like that and then uh, also the plan was to evacuate everyone who wanted to go from the town and at that time the town's usually got about 1200 to maybe 1500 people uh, and over Christmas holiday period there's about up to sort of about 7,000 or so people that are there so next morning we went ashore myself and the CEO of the ship and one of our logistics experts and still some fires and spot fires and smoldering happening and we met with the local emergency services so the victorian ambulance who were outstanding and the victorian police and the rural fire service all, all doing amazing jobs and then sort of held a series of meetings to facilitate the evacuation of members of the town that wanted to be evacuated because there's still a threat to the fire like the fire the wind had changed as i guess thankfully and it often does for the better. So the fire had sort of gone more north and west, but there was a chance that, you know, with wind changes that it was going to come back into the town. The town has one general practice, which is a small rural general practice with no sort of holding capability or critical care capability. It's got one pharmacist, uh, one pub, a couple of servos and uh, landing strip, which is instrument rated. Couldn't fly any uh, helicopters or uh, fixed wing assets in due to the smoke. Uh, and so I guess from a medical perspective, our, our role was twofold. One, we, a lot of people, the sort of medical center was overwhelmed. So we assisted and a lot of that was smoke inhalation related illnesses, some, you know, in vulnerable people like COPD patients and asthma patients that were sort of mildly unwell to moderately, no one was certainly really unwell and minor burns and things. And just, I guess, a lot of people with young kids and, and also the elderly who had coexisting medical conditions who we knew were much better if they could get out of that space. So we helped there. And then we also, their treatment room, we sort of helped uh, set up, a, I guess, like a recess bay there and 
had equipment from the ship to assist uh, with having a holding capacity. If we couldn't get people out that were unwell, you know, we had ventilators, syringe drivers, oxygen, uh, you know, our normal routine resus meds, which just aren't uh, at all available in a, a general practice uh, environment. So, so we set that up and then also we just facilitated the movement of these, of the personnel. So by the first afternoon, we were able to get uh, just through liaising with our army helicopters, we were able to get about 50 odd people out. And the next day, about 400 odd people out via airframes. And then also that next day, we evacuated about 1200 people on the first trip down to Melbourne or to Western Port. And then uh, went back and sort of over the next, sorry, the day after that, another 500 or so. And then ongoing flights to evacuate people, which was both uh, fixed wing and rotary wing. So, yeah, I think uh, in all, two and a half thousand odd people evacuated. By then, probably that was by the end of that, there was sort of four to five days and, uh, you know, the weather conditions had changed. And then so a lot of people elected to stay. I've been in the military now for 20 something years and, you know, I've sort of seen more when we've gone to help other countries. So, you know, first was the you know, Boxing Day tsunami in 2004 and then numerous other sort of disasters uh, around the world, mostly in the Pacific. To me, it was the first time that I've certainly been employed in that capacity domestically. It's the first time that the ADF was sort of in that capacity. Uh, you know, certainly we have with, you know, floods such as in North Queensland, in Townsville, and maybe previously to a lesser extent in uh, around Brisbane and, you know, Toowoomba sort of floods in 2011. But, um, uh, yeah, that was the first time in that I'm aware of that we, we had that sort of role. So, yeah, certainly, you know, confronting, you know, obviously a lot of people that lost uh, everything, a lot of uh, emotions, amazing resilience, uh, which, you know, you, you find, I think, in Australians in general, but also in rural Australia, uh, you know, incredible people who, even though they've lost things, you know, so there's rural fire guys that had lost their properties that were still there protecting other people's, you know, uh, properties and, and trying to prevent further damage. So, yeah, extraordinary. In terms of health effect, the Victorian ambulance were exceptional. Uh, we had uh, a couple of ED consultants. So, so the Victorian government have... Uh, uh, FEMA's a field emergency medical tenants or assistants or something who are uh, usually uh, FASEMs uh, who provide a disaster response and coordination and things. So they came in too and they sort of had the ongoing management after we'd uh, left or our role had changed. So, um, yeah, everyone did an exceptional job, I think. For me, I guess uh, the sort of the role of a military in domestic you know, disaster responses the last few years has really ramped up, you know. So shortly after that uh, was the, you know, Burnie Hospital when uh, the initial COVID sort of outbreak there where they had to close the ED and then the, the ADF came in and was working there, running the ED with, you know, no other help for, for two weeks. You know, busy ED and there was two facems, so, you know, working sort of, well, certainly 16 hour plus days, you know, and no registrars, a couple of GP defence ADF guys as well. But really it was uh, two ADF ED guys that were doing that with great nurses. So, and then obviously the ADFs had a big response in terms of with COVID uh, over the last couple of years with assisting. Been a busy time domestically, I think, for uh, defence health, but also very rewarding. In terms of the uh, the floods, so I was down in Sydney when the floods were occurring, and then I came back because I was asked to, if I could come and help out. So I came home, and the day after I came home, we went to one of the local towns, and uh, they um, were starting to set up like a, uh, I guess, a medical triage and things in, in a town called Mullumbimby, because unfortunately the communications were terrible, so there was no Telstra coverage. And Optus and other sort of service coverage was pretty bad. And that was for about five days. And so comms were an absolute disaster. And there's a lot of small towns around there that were isolated and landslides and floods. So, And there was a lot of just local uh, health goodwill by local GPs and ED docs and nurses, ICU docs and nurses that were um, helping out. And then a few days in, that became more coordinated, I guess, from a local health district uh, point of view. 
and they'd set up evacuation centres in in their region. So anyone who was displaced or you know had lost their home were accommodated in evacuation centres. And at one time, I think they had 23 evacuation centres and thousands of people in these places. So they needed you know a health effect or support. And so my job was to uh, provide health effect in these evacuation centres and to coordinate, I guess, their medical care. The two biggest centres, which one was at the uni, Southern Cross Uni, and one was at uh, the local sports sort of facility. At its biggest, there was probably just under a couple of thousand people at those sites. And um, of all walks of life, as you can imagine, so there was, you know, people with families and there was also more of our colourful elements of our community. So people, chronic uh, mental health and drug and alcohol problems, et cetera, they're all there and, you know, sleeping co-located in uh, sort of basketball arenas and uh, just anywhere that we could. So that was, uh, that certainly had its own challenges as well, providing healthcare to these guys and I guess our role was to provide healthcare because I think of the five GP practices around, three of them were not operational. Most of the pharmacies weren't operational. And to try and prevent the ED getting overwhelmed in this mall because it was already busy there. And so we were trying to you know, provide healthcare, provide everything else they needed in terms of you know, there's other services there to provide, um, starting to get looking for accommodation and the other essential services that people needed. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, that was a great job too. Very rewarding. Once again, great people that I worked with. Yeah, I think we provided a good health effect and I think that uh, we did uh, help reduce, um, you know, some of the, the stresses and the, um, you know, the, certainly the emotional crises that they were facing at the time, people. And, um, and also I think we helped reduce some of the, uh, the burden on the local hospitals, which were also obviously struggling with the effects of the flood and also the, the volume of people that they had coming through. Thanks very much, Scott. Just inspiring here about, I guess, the way the community has band together, including, you know, our defence personnel. And, well, I guess, you know, you were in a defence personnel role on one side and I'm just a member of the local community in the second. But regardless, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Dr. Scott Squires for presenting your fascinating outlook on all the disasters in the Australian community of late and we really appreciate your service in these trying times. That concludes part two of our environmental medicine episode of the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. Hopefully we'll have you along for part three but in the meantime we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Mr. Times